The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Uh, one of the things I want to do is uh, make a few uh, introductory remarks about some of the wonderful things that are going on in the business school before I bring up our, our speaker this evening. And the first thing I want to do is if on your name tag, and I don't have my name tag with me, you have a ribbon that says uh, management partners on it, you need to say goodbye to that ribbon because we are changing the name of our alumni group for the business school and it will now be called the Grazia Dio Alumni Network. So this is the very last time you will have that ribbon that says management partners in the future. It will say Grazia Dio Alumni Network. We thought that was a much better representation of what that group was, and it explained it better to people. And so we are very excited about that change. Great credit goes to our alumni leadership councils uh, here in Orange County and L.A. and in Northern California for helping us uh, bring about that name change. So next time you're at one of our events, you will have a new ribbon on your name tag. I also want to mention we have some other fabulous speakers this year in our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. The next speaker will be on November 6th at the Malibu campus, and we'll be hosting Andy Bird, who is the president of Walt Disney International. So we certainly hope that you'll be a part of that and look forward to our future uh, Dells in, in the months that come. Also, uh, as we have done in the past, we will have a podcast. I interviewed... Uh, uh, Deborah, earlier this afternoon, and so within uh, the next couple of weeks, you will be able to listen to that interview. Uh, you can get it on iTunes. You'll have access to it through our website, and so we will be doing that again this year. I know some of you have listened to those in the past, so we'll look forward to that this year. A couple of other things. We have been very busy uh, in the business school working on uh, the programs that we offer and have actually pr uh, developed a couple of new programs this year. I want to mention very briefly so that you can tell others about them. And we're also uh, looking at how we can better take the programs we have to the marketplace in the right way. So a couple things that we're doing, we have done several on-site programs at Boeing. We are doing another one for the first time at the Huntington Beach facility in January. And we'll very likely do a second class there in April because we've had such high demand for that January class. We are also in April going to do our first class of our um, MBA program in Antelope Valley. There's been tremendous demand out there. It's an underserved area in terms of higher education, and so we're looking forward to that as well, so some really good opportunities. We've also got three new degree programs that have been approved in very recent weeks, two Master's of Science programs, one a Master of Science in Applied Finance. It's designed for students who have non business undergraduate degrees without work experience who really want to polish their skills and move into entry-level jobs in the financial services industry. So we're very excited about that. We're working very closely with the Humanities Division at Seaver College, and certainly it will be open to students from other universities as well. And then our other MS program that we've approved is an MS in management and leadership. We have very strong faculty in the management and leadership area. This program is actually designed as a part-time program either at our Orange County or West Los Angeles campus or as an on-site for uh, companies. And it's really designed for people who are technical specialists or functional specialists and want to move into management and leadership roles. And so it's going to be a very applied, interactive, experiential program, and we're really excited about that and we will begin recruiting that program very soon. And then the last one is uh, an interesting program for us. We uh, just in the last few weeks have uh, finished approvals for a Bachelor of Science 
MBA program that is a joint degree between Seaver College's business division, the undergraduate school at Pepperdine, and the business school. So it's the first time we've done a joint program with our undergraduate uh, college at Pepperdine. And so we're really looking forward to that. The first class of that program will start in January of 2009. And so it, also if you have children or friends who have children that are going to be going to Seaver College, uh, let them know about the opportunity that we have there. Well, it is, there's a lot going on, as you can see, in the school, lots of interesting activities and programs. And before I introduce Deborah, I do want to mention that we have another event coming to Orange County. Uh, that will be on November 8th, and that will be our Alumni Sharing Knowledge Ask Reception. We have done those here for several years now. They're always enormously successful. It brings our alumni, students, friends together. It's just a great networking, mingling opportunity. And this year, uh, as I said, it will be on November 8th, and it's going to be in the, at the Discovery Science Center in Santa Ana, so a fun venue, and we hope that you will come and, and let your friends know about that so we have a great turnout for that. We've had close to 300 people in the past at that event, so we're looking forward to it growing this year. Well, we're all here to hear from Deborah Platt-Majoris, and you have a treat in store for you. Deborah and I just spent the last three days at uh, the Fortune Most Powerful Women's Summit uh, here in Orange County, which was a fabulous experience. But because of that, I've had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Deborah the last two or three days. And it's going to be a real treat to hear from her. She's a wonderful person, does very interesting work at the Federal Trade Commission. But she was sworn in as chairman of the Federal Trade Commission in August of 2004. Her tenure at the FTC has been marked by the Commission's strong efforts to protect and enhance consumer welfare. She's focused on ensuring data security and protecting consumers from emerging frauds such as identity theft, spyware, and deceptive spam. Uh, prior to serving for the Federal Trade Commission, she was in the Justice Department uh, in a couple of different roles. And prior to that, she was in the, worked for the Antitrust Division of Jones Day, a major law firm. She's also been recognized, particularly in the recent years, for the tremendous work that she's done in the area of identity theft. And, and she received the, privacy, the International Association of Privacy Professionals 2007 Privacy Leadership Award. SC Magazine named her one of the top five influential IT security thinkers in 2006. And this one's really impressive. The Washingtonian Magazine listed her among the 100 most powerful women in Washington, which is saying a lot. So we are just uh, thrilled to have you here tonight, Deborah. She has a law degree from University of Virginia and lives in McLean, Virginia with her husband, John. So it is such a pleasure to have you here. Deborah is going to share a few remarks with us, and then we're going to have a short conversation and open it up to the audience so that you can be a part of our conversation as well. So Deborah Platt-Majoris. Well, thank you so much, uh, Linda. It's always a pleasure for me to speak to folks outside the Beltway, and it's uh, definitely an honor to be part of your executive leadership series. I've spent my career thus far working to defend the free market, but I'm always quick to add with people that free does not mean freedom from responsibility. Indeed, markets fail when they're plagued by cowards and cheats. So I was very gratified to read Dean Livingstone's message on the website, which states that the school focuses on developing leaders grounded in such core values as integrity, stewardship, courage, and compassion. Certainly the founders had it right. While I've met plenty of people in positions of authority, 
I mean, let's face it, everybody in Washington thinks they're in some position of authority, <laughs> who apparently reject such a value set. I've never met a true leader who was not grounded in these values. Indeed, Theodore Roosevelt cited courage, honor, justice, truth, sincerity, and hardihood as the virtues that made America. But today I fear those are not the words that come to mind when most Americans are asked to describe their major institutions. That would be business and government. And in listening to discussions of business trends at the conference that the dean and I just attended over the past couple of days, it's clear that business has a credibility crisis with the public. And we all know what the poll ratings are for our government in Washington these days. So I've spent the last six and a half years uh, working in DC and I thought I'd offer to you a few observations and share some of what I think I've learned about public service and leadership. As I reflect on my three years at the Federal Trade Commission, I'm reminded of an episode from Ronald Spector's history of naval warfare in the 20th century. Early in the 1940s, as the Allies strained to defend convoys from U-boat attacks in the Atlantic, many naval officers were facing new challenges of unimaginable difficulty. As Professor Spector tells it, a relatively junior captain of a corvette was struggling unsuccessfully to maintain a proper station in a convoy. And a senior officer on another escort signaled the wayward corvette, what are you doing? From the corvette came the reply, learning a lot. And I think, for me, that really sums it up. I've really had an interesting relationship with Washington, sort of, to tell you the truth, a love-hate relationship. It's been very good to me, um, but I've been very wary of its temptations and tried, in many ways, to keep my distance. I first arrived in Washington in 1985 with this fresh diploma from Westminster College in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, in hand. That college was an hour down the road really far from Meadville, the town of 11,000, where uh, I had grown up. And moving to Washington, which was the city of just excellent opportunity, was really a very, very big deal. But the thing is, I would soon find as I got to Washington that, hey, it seemed like the entire nation's class of 1985 had arrived with their shiny new diplomas all at the same time, and they all had the same enthusiasm and fresh energy and wanted to save the world. Worse yet, I didn't have any money. So... Um, so I quickly took a job as a receptionist in a law firm. I couldn't type, but I figured that, um, you know, I knew how to talk on the phone. And um, uh, <laughs> there was no texting back then. Um, we were still talking on the phone. And, um, and I figured, you know, everyone who walked in the door would have to talk to me, and that would be a good thing. And I would be able to develop some of these elusive contacts that everybody said you had to have, even though I didn't really know who those people would be. Um, well, you know, I had a choice at that point. Um, I could act like I was really too good for that position. It wasn't really what I wanted. It was just a wayward stop along the way um, to great success. Or I could work and try to become the best receptionist that this law firm had ever hired. And um, thanks to my parents, who taught me that all hard work is honorable as long as you're doing your best, I chose the latter course. Um, and three or four months later, uh, the firm promoted me. Uh, to become a paralegal. But it's interesting because I've often looked back at those four months and there's just absolutely no question in my mind that I learned more in that time period about the legal profession, about working in a professional environment, about certainly how to develop relationships with support staff 
than I've ever learned in any of my other legal jobs um, in that in, in in my professional life. Not to mention learning how to live when you have $27 left in your checking account. You know, my appreciation for the honor and that hard work and the contributions of support staff has remained with me today. I have zero tolerance for disrespect in the workplace. And as busy as I get, I try to remember to send emails of praise and thanks, uh, even when we lose a case, for example, when people have worked hard, because I don't care how old you are. Um, we all still are uplifted or motivated by a compliment or a thank you. Um, they are great motivating tools. So today in my office of the FTC, we hire kids in and out of college to help us answer phones, review the mail, and the like. We teach them how to work in a professional office setting and help them to grow and prepare for their next challenges. I have to say I worry today when I hear that, you know, we pay today for our children to have the finest education money can buy, but we're not requiring them to get the education that no money can buy, and that is joining the workforce. Today, less than 44% of teenagers work, which is the lowest number since the government started keeping track in the 1940s. This despite the fact that if you look, for example, at the book From the Sandbox to the Corner Office, Lessons Learned on the Journey to the Top, in which the author interviews more than 50 CEOs and leaders, most said that they certainly held jobs as teens and that that work had a really lasting impact on them throughout their lives. Well, after law school, I went back to uh, Washington um, was away for three years at UVA and then went back. And I had a two-year clerkship with a federal district court judge, Stanley S. Harris. And what a wonderful example Judge Harris was for a freshly minted lawyer. It's a profession, I'm sorry to say, not known for his graciousness, with no offense to my fellow, uh, my fellow attorneys in the audience. But despite his honored position and lifetime tenure, he treated everyone with whom he encountered with the utmost courtesy and respect. And after two really tremendous years of learning a lot from Judge Harris about the law, but more importantly about life, um, he gave me two valuable pieces of advice as I went off to private practice. First, he said, don't go looking for compliments or pats on the back right away when you get to the law firm. Um, the fact is you are expected to do excellent work, and it won't always be immediately acknowledged. And then the second thing he said, which was perhaps even more important, was that I should measure success in my legal career by what my opposing counsel thought of me. And I've thought of that many, many times um, as I am tempted to lash out in the heat of battle. Um, but I've thought about those words, um, and, uh, and they've become actually quite important to me. Now, despite the value and enjoyment of that clerkship, I developed during that time, I must confess to you, a very negative attitude about Washington. I, I had been there years before as that receptionist and paralegal with a lot of idealism. But by that time, I was starting to become a little more cynical. And I saw hypocrisy in a really sort of unproductive place. So I left, and I went to Chicago. And I vowed never to go back. And for most of the next eight years, I would then go from Chicago to Cleveland. Eventually, the firm's antitrust partners tried to pull me back to Washington. I mean, after all, if you can do antitrust, you ought to be in Washington, right? But I wouldn't go. And I wanted no part of what I thought was a, an unhealthy environment. But the lobbying did force me to think about why was I having such negative feelings about Washington, this really exciting place. It is like so many cities, really filled with high-energy, ambitious people. But it's an environment that brings out both the best and the worst in us. And so in being there, 
at that young age, I think I was just really feeling the turmoil that soul searching puts you through. You know, when you grow up affording automatic respect to people in positions of authority and responsibility, which I did, but then you start seeing those in positions who are choosing a road that's paved with short-term gain first, responsibility to others second if they ever get around to it. But the truth is, it's not just that you can look at that and say, oh, pff, how awful. No, the fact is you look at it and you say, well, that's kind of a cool way to live. You know, I sort of like that. This is sort of fun. And that, I think, was what I was struggling with. Well, never say never, because finally I decided with my husband that it made sense for us to go back to Washington. And we were in the process of moving when I was asked to go into the Justice Department and join the Bush administration. And I think, you know, um, one doesn't turn down those opportunities and one shouldn't. It's, um, uh, they're tremendous and public service is, is a wonderful thing. Um, never mind, I'd never worked on a campaign. I hadn't given any money to speak of. But now I would find myself, you know, back in the city that I had avoided just even being at a law firm and now I was going to be in the heart of the business of Washington. And that business, of course, is governing. So I had to admit, I mean, this is very exciting, you know, it's intoxicating, really, to be a part of. And I arrived at DOJ, and I was so eager. Um, I was the first political appointee to arrive in the, in, the, in the Bush administration in the antitrust division. And I was so eager to get to know the career staff, and I thought, surely they'll be eager to meet me, one of their new bosses. Yes. Ah, not so fast. What I encountered was a pretty fair dose of wariness and suspicion. I was offended. My goodness. I thought, wait, you'll like me. I promise. I'm very easy to get along with. Then, though, I, I listened to another appointee in another division, and he was complaining similarly about the career staff. And as I listened to him, I felt myself getting very defensive for the career staff there. And I found myself doing what my mother had asked me to do so many times, you know, that it was really almost irritating, which is, you know, put yourself in their shoes. There they are in the trenches doing their jobs for the public, and they have to do them no matter who's at the top, right? And every three or four years, a new group of supposed hotshots comes in and starts telling them what they're doing wrong and how they ought to do it differently. Well, no wonder they were wary, right? So I vowed then and there that what I needed to do was a great deal of listening and that I would do what I could do best. I couldn't convince them by words that I was worthy to be there with them, but I would work hard and I would work alongside them not lording it over them. And I learned really in a hurry that effective leadership requires more than a title. Much more importantly, it requires the respect of those we endeavor to lead. And that respect has to be earned. It can't be appointed. Well, one of the other things I quickly learned at Justice when I began doing the job was how difficult it can be to discern exactly what's in the public interest. Because, of course, I'd been representing clients for years, and the client can tell you this is, what, this is the objective. This is what we want. And, of course, within the bounds of the law, we work toward that objective. But now you're asked to do what's in the public interest. And you can look at the law and you can see that. But, um, but it's not as simple as it looks. And, of course, you have lots of opinions all the time from people telling you this is what's in the public interest. And coincidentally, it happens to coincide with their own interests at the same time. Well, in no matter on which I worked at justice were the principles more important to think through than in the department's antitrust case against Microsoft. Shortly after our new team began in 2001, the Court of Appeals in Washington ruled that yes, Microsoft had violated the antitrust laws, but in far fewer ways than what the trial court had thought. 
So the Court of Appeals cut the case way back, threw cold water on the idea of breaking the company in half, sent it back to the trial court and said, you need to determine a new remedy in this case. So immediately, the lobbying began in earnest. I had never seen anything like this. Companies in the computer industry, members of Congress, interest groups, you name it, they were just descending on us, all telling us, here's what you need to do to Microsoft. Break up the company anyway, some said. Don't worry about what the court said. Others said, hey, come on, Microsoft's just a successful company. Why don't you leave them alone? Very interesting. But what we had before us was a legal decision that said Microsoft violated the antitrust laws in these ways, and you need to remedy this. That was the only option we had. Well, interestingly, in late, in, in late September, less than three weeks after 9-11, we went into court, and the trial judge handed us an order, and it opened with the following sentence, and I quote, In light of the recent tragic events affecting our nation, the court regards the benefit which will be derived from a quick resolution of these cases as increasingly significant, end quote. In it, she ordered us to begin settlement negotiations, quote, again, meeting seven days a week and around the clock, acting reasonably to reach a fair settlement, end quote, for the next five years. Now, I've pulled all-nighters before, but I've never had a judge order me to do it. <laughs> and on a personal note, I blanched sitting there in the courtroom because I was about to get married eight days later. Um, so that's a story for another time. <laughs> Well, during these settlement talks, I mean, the lobbying just became more intense. One, one lawyer came to me and said, you know, just ignore the judge's order, refuse to settle. Another threatened that if we settled this case with Microsoft, we'd never get any help ever again on anything from anyone in Silicon Valley. Others remained steadfast that we should break up the company no matter what the court had to say. So this was just, this was just crazy. And again, this was all very, very new uh, to me. The negotiations were also equally intense. And with every remedy we considered, we had to think about not only the impact on Microsoft, but the impact on the entire industry, this, um, this tremendously dynamic industry. Um, and ultimately, we were working for the U.S. consumer. So what do you do with this? Well, I only knew one thing to do. I was a lawyer. I wasn't a politician. I was a lawyer. So I looked at it from a lawyer's perspective. If the Court of Appeals says X, what does the law say about remedying X? Um, and we hewed as closely as we could to that. Um, we determined quickly that politics had no place in law enforcement. Well, as you may know, we did settle, and we received um, criticism and praise, but the criticism, well, uh, let me assure you, drowned out the praise. The anti-Microsoft lobby screamed it had been a political sellout. Members of Congress demanded we go up to explain. It was really tough. Criticism is a fact of life when you're a public figure, but boy, it doesn't make it really any less painful. So, you know, one night I was explaining to, you know, my parents, well, this is what this case is all about. I mean, this is what's going on because everybody's always sort of interested in the case, but it's, it's rather complicated. And I explained the whole thing, and we got to the end, and my father asked me just very quietly. He said, Deborah, which is how I knew he was serious when he calls me Deborah, was it the right thing to do? And I answered, it was. And I knew at that moment that it had been right because you can't ever lie to your parents. Um, um, well, you try when you're younger, but it never it never works. It never did in my case, I can assure you. Um, and um, and so we moved on from there. You know, you build up these Washington-type scars. You learn that criticism is part of it, and you keep on doing the job. And you know, later after an open public comment process in which we received a record 34,000 public comments, including someone who sent us pornography. Um, 
the trial court not only approved the settlement but complimented it at length, and then I had the privilege ultimately to argue in defense of the settlement in the Court of Appeals, which we won um, 6-0. But the thing that I learned so much um, through this process, and people can argue about whether we were right or wrong, but but the, what, what you realize is that the process of decision-making requires listening to voices on all sides, but it can't be about pleasing any one particular voice. In the end, we have to make the best decision we can using all the appropriate criteria, and then we have to move on. And so I really learned a great deal from that. Now, ultimately, my boss at the Justice Department resigned earlier than expected because he was offered the position of general counsel at Chevron Texaco. And it quickly became clear that the competition to replace him would come down to my good friend and a fellow deputy of mine, Hugh Pate, and myself. And we each had our supporters. And, you know, given that I was so close to Charles and had done so much for him in that job, I endured this quiet course of, you know, chorus of, oh, everybody knows you're going to get the job. You know you're going to get the job. And Hugh and I discussed this, and we agreed that whatever happened, we were going to try to support each other and not fall apart over this. Well, some days prior to these separate meetings that Attorney General Ashcroft set up to tell us about the decision, I saw the handwriting on the wall. I figured it out. And I knew that Hugh was going to get the job, and that I wasn't. And I was crushed. And I cried, and I got angry. And I railed against the injustice of it all. Um, you know, people had told me I deserved that job, so didn't I? And, um, and then people told me, well, you know, I mean, for heaven's sake, you couldn't possibly stay if you don't get the job. You've got to leave. You couldn't work for Hugh. So I had my pride to protect, and no way should I work for Hugh. Well, at the appointed time, I met with the Attorney General together with a few others, and the AG looked me in the eye. And he told me that while it had been a very tough decision, Hugh had been chosen. He then went on to tell me how much he wanted me to stay and that he really contemplated having Hugh and me working together to run the antitrust division. And I looked him in the eye back, and words came out of my mouth that um, I think I'd prayed for, but I, I couldn't really, didn't really know if it was me speaking at the time. I congratulated him on making a terrific choice, and I told him that Hugh was a fabulous lawyer and a great American. And I then told him that I would stay because I loved the job and the people, and I believed I could still make a strong contribution. And then as I said these words, I saw these stunned looks on the faces of all the gentlemen, including Attorney General Ashcroft, like um, they couldn't believe it. It was not what they had anticipated. And I shook the AG's hand, and it became clear that he and I um, developed a bond, which remains today. Well, let's face facts. As soon as I got a safe distance from his office, I completely burst into tears. I fell apart. Um, but you know, I knew that I was doing what was right. I hadn't deserved anything. We don't deserve these jobs. We deserved the respectful treatment that I got from the Attorney General of the United States. Public service is just that. It's service. That's what it means. Um, it requires sacrifice, and it requires that you step up when you're called. Incidentally, the year I then spent at DOJ working as Hughes deputy was one of the most fun and rewarding of my life. And I realized you know, as I've thought about it, you know, it's so easy to see what those people we admire have achieved. Um, that's what's on our resume, right? All of our achievements. And we don't see the disappointments and the stumbling, but they're always there. You know, it's not true that successful people don't suffer failures, but it's true that they don't allow these failures to bring them to a screeching halt. And I almost fell into that trap. Um, 
So I learned, you know, as my mother had once told me, I learned so vividly at that time that people will not think less of you when you stumble. They will think less of you if you act, however, without grace and dignity. So that was a great, a tough, but very, but very great lesson. And I was ultimately honored to then be called to public service again in 2004 when I was nominated, um, when I was nominated for this job. It was tough because two senators immediately put a hold on my nomination. And you may know, I never know what people outside the Beltway know about some of the goofiness in Washington, but it, it happens to be the case that any one senator can put a hold on a nomination and keep it. And the senator can remain anonymous and doesn't have to say why the hold's put on or even who, who's done it. Um, in this case, Senator Ron Wyden actually fessed up that it was him, and his, his view was that I needed to commit to him that I would, because of rising gasoline prices, I would go into the FTC and I would sue the oil companies um, to get them to bring down prices. And I wouldn't commit to it. Um, and so he held up my nomination. So, um, you know, ultimately I was recess appointed and then confirmed. Um, and the good news is that that really strengthened, that really strengthened my resolve. If the price and, you know, it's very easy to say, fine, I'll say this to the senator and we'll move on. Does anybody in Washington really say what they, what they mean? Um, but um, it didn't seem to me that that made any sense. I mean, if that's the price you have to pay, you know, why, why is the job worth doing? Um, and so I've really tried to, held, to hold that. On the day that I was sworn in, I, I stood before my staff, my fellow commissioners, and, and I said, I'm going, we're going to endeavor to do the right thing. That's, that's what we're going to do here. We're going we're gonna to apply law to facts. We're going to use sound economics, and we're going to try to, to make the right decisions. That's what's going to govern our decision-making. But make no mistake about it. I will stumble, and I will falter, because there are a lot of pressures on all of us. And what I ask of you is that you call me out on it when it happens. Um, and we've tried to do that for each other throughout our tenure. Um, you know, I recognize that much better people than I have made tremendous pledges, but then they've slipped backward. Um, and so this is why I just felt that I needed to set us all up to look after each other in this regard. Now, people will ultimately be the judges of how we've succeeded in at the Federal Trade Commission, and I'm afraid I'm a little too close to it right now uh, to be able to comment on that. Um, our record will ultimately speak for itself. Um, but I do... Um, uh, but I can assure you that we have worked to foster an environment in what matters is the law and the economics. When, um, when Larry Thompson was the Deputy Attorney General when I was at Justice, he's now the General Counsel at PepsiCo, um, used to chat with me about some things. He always said to me, all you can do, Debbie, is call balls and strikes. That, that's your job. You call balls and strikes. And um, I'm a huge baseball fan, so that, that's, a, that's an easier one for me. But when you get away from your guiding strictures, um, in our case, law and economics, then you're really standing in sinking sand. And that, um, that I have not wanted us to do. Now, one of the things that people frequently say about folks when they're in leadership positions is that we get a, bu a bully pulpit. You might say I'm using one now. I hope you don't think I'm bullying. And I'm very careful. Um, I, give a number, I give a lot of speeches on mostly topics that are relevant to what we're doing at the FTC, of course. But I'm very careful about the bully part of the pulpit because I know that as a government enforcer, we have power, and that power can be abused. Uh, and I want us to be cautious about that. But I've come to appreciate, nonetheless, the positive results that we can obtain by using a position to ask people to do the right thing and to find ways to get us all there. So I'd just like to give you 
one example. When I took office in 2004, I immediately faced calls for the FTC to do something about childhood obesity. In the U.S. today, 20% of our kids ages 6 to 11 are overweight, and type 2 diabetes has doubled among children and youth in the past decade. In a recent uh, Wall Street Journal poll found that 84% of U.S. adults are considering childhood obesity to be a major problem. Well, among the potential causes of this societal problem, some have identified the marketing of unhealthy foods to kids, and they've called on the FTC to ban or restrict food advertising to children. And I realized almost immediately that we can't do that. Um, and the first and most important reason we can't do that is because we need to abide by the First Amendment, and the First Amendment protects healthy speech. And heaven knows junk food tastes really good. So it's not deceptive to say that it does. Um, and second, quite frankly, it would be practically impossible to become the food police. Um, and there are all sorts of societal questions about whether we should. My view is we don't know precisely what all has caused this huge problem. There's lots of reasons that we can all think of, and there, we'd probably all be right. So I question whether such an action would represent anything more than a government intrusion on parental responsibility. But nonetheless, what I could tell was that parents, on the one hand, could use some help, and that leaders in industry were actually likely willing to step up and do something. So in July of 2005, the FTC, together with the Department of Health and Human Services, held a joint public workshop on this issue. And we then issued a follow-up report in April of 2006 in which we urged the industry to consider a wide range of options on self-regulation and assist in combating this problem. We said, regardless of who's to blame here, these are our kids. So let's all step up and try to be part of the solution. Let's try to do the right thing here. Well, a number of companies, we were pleased, took the recommendation seriously. So in October of last year, the Walt Disney Company announced a whole new range of food guidelines aimed at giving parents and children healthier food options. And in November, um, the Children's Advertising Unit, KRU, which is administered by the Council of Better Business Bureaus, announced a new self-regulatory advertising initiative designed to use advertising to help promote healthy dietary choices and healthy lifestyles among our children. Twelve of the leading food companies, including McDonald's, Hershey, Kraft, General Mills, are participants in the initiative, and together they account for more than two-thirds of all food marketing to kids. And we had a forum in July in which they announced what they were doing. They have pledged to voluntarily restrict their advertising to children on television, radio, print, and the Internet. Each of the companies committed either to limiting 100% of their advertising directed to children to food products that meet certain nutrition standards or to refrain from advertising to kids. I think three who've said we're not going to advertise to kids at all. The nutritional standards vary somewhat by company, but all are required to be consistent with established scientific or government standards. As part of the initiative, the companies committed to restricting their use of third-party licensed characters to products that meet nutritional criteria and to websites promoting healthy lifestyles. So, you know, today you can see that General Mills and Nickelodeon are partnering so that Dora the Explorer is now um, on promoting frozen vegetables. Mickey Mouse, you'll see only on uh, healthier foods. SpongeBob is advertising vegetables. Cookie Monster is talking about cookies as a sometimes food. And um, Shrek, <laughs> well... 
<laughs> my view has always been for the people who say to me, you know, these characters get kids to eat junk food. Well, if they can get kids to eat junk food, then get them to eat spinach, you know. Um, uh, I'm not sure Popeye got us to eat spinach, but that's beside the point. Now I'm showing my age for sure. Um, and Shrek is urging kids to get out and exercise an hour a day. So, um, so this is um, this is something um, that I feel very proud of, um, and I'm very proud of this business community um, for stepping up. And people are cynical, and they say, "Well, look, if they hadn't stepped up, you know, maybe Congress is going to regulate them, and of course they're going to make money off these products." Well, so what? Um, of course they're going to. But it, but but look, if if these companies start making money off selling healthy products. That should make us all very, very happy. Um, so, I just, I just point that out to you as, as a place where, um, where you know, the, the, the power of just the law coming down on these folks was not what was going to work here. What was going to work here was a group of people coming together and saying, "Hey, we've got a problem. Let's see what we can do about it." Well, in closing, I'll just tell you one last story. Two years ago, I was asked to deliver the commencement address at the Owen Graduate School of Management at Vanderbilt. And I was asked the night before at a reception what I was going to talk about. And I said, I'm going to talk about personal responsibility and ethical action. And one person said, whew, talking about ethics, that's dangerous. And I think he was referring to the fact that a few years before, the now late Ken Lay had spoken about business ethics in a speech. <laughs> but still, I thought about this. You know, we're in trouble if ethics is considered a dangerous topic, especially at a business school. But I did come to realize and have come to realize that what really is dangerous is to discuss it without a heavy dose of humility. You know, acting with integrity and remaining accountable is not easy. It's easy, though, to be smug when we read about the downfall of executives or politicians who cheated. I mean, do you really think that these high-profile ex executives who broke the law were just bad people who took their jobs and said, oh, this is fantastic. Now I can achieve my lifelong goal of defrauding all of the shareholders and make myself rich. Or that those running for office for the first time think, ooh, can't wait to get in there and cheat the American people for my own personal gain. Maybe, but I really doubt it. In general, they're talented and ambitious probably largely decent individuals who over time held themselves increasingly accountable only for meeting profit targets at the expense of other objectives or for getting reelected, which meant that they compromised and they justified and they made excuses, shifted blame, played dumb, all of those things, which every one of us is capable of doing at one time or another. Indeed, I looked at a Wall Street Journal story once about the downfall of of uh, WorldCom and the, the former controller who had reclassified huge expenses to eliminate the impact on the bottom line. And what this said was, in an illustration of how huge ethical lapses often begin with small steps, he justified his actions to himself, thinking WorldCom's business would soon improve. As Robin Willaner sets forth in her book, Naked in the Boardroom, quote, when the stakes are enormous and the pressure is intense, even a normally ethical person can make a mistake, end of quote. So what I think I've learned is that only by remaining humble about our own capacity for straying away from what we know we should do will we exercise the sufficient discipline over our own actions. So I'll end with where I began, which is that I'm still learning. Um, and, uh, and I learn every day from someone I encounter. And I hope um, perhaps by sharing a few words with you tonight, um, we've, we've shared something that we can all learn from. So I thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>